This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project where I talk with artists about their work and their lives. The ultimate goal here is to give listeners a better understanding about the experiences and people behind the artwork. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, straight on, and unscripted. Deep Color is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The New York Studio School offers a range of programs, including internationally recognized drawing marathons, evening and Saturday classes, and a distinguished lecture series that is free and open to the public. Applications for full-time study in the two-year MFA and three-year certificate program are due February 15th. Apply online today at nyss.org. This episode profiles Butt Johnson. Butt makes highly rendered and labor-intensive drawings by using ballpoint pens, markers, and gel pens on paper. He uses a specific drawing system that relies on tracings, a mayline drafting table, laser-cut plastic guides, and an X and Y axis to steer his delicate line work. The imagery he selects to draw is often a blend of art history and pop culture references, security patterns, flowers and garden scenes, or still-life setups, like a bowl of fruit or a pair of shoes. He also shifts comfortably into abstraction by making ornate drawings of geometric shapes and layers of carefully articulated gestural marks. Butt's work is full of patience and curiosity and underscores a profound commitment to drawing and craft. We recorded this conversation at his home studio in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn. curiosity mm-hmm. and yeah very similar you know the paradox of this thing is w- that we're visual artists right um we'll it, use our powers of description yeah so we, we rely on language okay. and storytelling to try and um communicate our ideas in that form mm-hmm. um but f- before we even sort of get into like adjectives to use to describe your work i think it's important to um maybe talk about the origins of but johnson and but johnson as a pseudonym Mm -hmm. and how he came to be Uh, are you comfortable i know he goes back to your years as a student Mm -hmm. and it was a bit of a performance do you want to just talk about that as a starting place um maybe i'll go even farther back yeah please say that i even as a kid i've made up characters and i uh made up pseudonyms um it's i can't explain it but (laughs) No, I mean it's a, it's something that has always occurred to me to try and like split my identity sure. into into other characters and some of my first like uh, endeavors in authorship were making comics and right. and actually self publishing them when I was in junior high and under a different uh, name under many different names. What yeah. were some of the older names? Um, do you remember? I do. Believe it or not, some of them are too embarrassing to to say. But not only I, I would like suck my friends into it too, right. and uh, there was there were one or two friends that would make comics with me, and we would all make up names. So yeah. it became like a social. I think that's event. such a thing when we're young. I mean, because I did that in, in various ways. It was more around like less about like authorship or like connected to a, like a, a um, making something mm-hmm. like a comic book. Mm-hmm. It was more like. St- wanting to sound cool Mm -hmm. and i'm thinking of like 
believe it or not, I was really heavily into break dancing in rural New Hampshire in the early eighties. Uh-huh. <laughs> and a lot of these break dancers had like their, their performance names. And there was a, uh, like a terrible break dancing movie where a guy was named turbo in it. And I just wanted to be called turbo. Yeah. Like there's something, I get that. There's it, something there when we're young. Yeah. And, and, and the, the like information we're fed through popular culture and the yeah. people we thought were cool, uh, oftentimes had made up names. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, turbo is a little more, has a, has a better landing point than Joe. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you think about like growing up in the eighties and early nineties right. and like people like Buster Rhymes and mm-hmm. Q-Tip. Have, yeah. You know, we're like the cool people. Right. Right. <laughs> that we were. But carrying that, at. carrying, uh, like introducing Butt Johnson as a name to use under your identity as an artist. Right. Um, uh, it's, yeah. it does, it stems from sort of a, a, I remember the day that it, that it was made up, but I was making up a bunch of names and eventually made up like a whole art movement of artists that had different stupid names. And, um, I, I was making different kinds of work. It, it sort of allowed me to, to split up the language of, yeah. of work that I was making, uh, even as like a junior in college or a senior in college. And, I, I, my senior thesis was like a fake art movement right. of, of artists and Butt Johnson was, was one of them, mm-hmm. uh, by no means the primary one. Right. Um, but it was the one that was like assigned to making drawings and, and that became my, my most specific interest, uh, after graduating. Right. So I just stuck with it and, you know, almost 20 years later, I'm still still using it as a, as a it. handle is, I mean, I imagine a certain amount of freedom comes with that to re, like remove the self from, yeah, totally from the work. Can you talk about that a little bit? Or I mean, I mean, you sort of just did it. Yeah. I mean, it, it allows you to, to take out your, who you are in, in a lot of ways right. because it's this anonymous sort of stupid name. Yeah. Uh, and you can, people will build in whatever they want into it. Sure. They, they, they and I have no idea how it's going to play out. Right. I have no idea how people think of it and, or how people come to the work. Right. Um, the burden of responsibility sort of shrunk to like, oh, that's just this character I've created. It's not really me. Right. I mean, not that there's anything to be. Yeah. It's weird. Like, it um, is. It is. Deny responsibility about through your work. But I'm just wondering yeah. like the many sort of uses of a. Of a, of a pseudonym. A, as a, of a pseudonym or like a different identity. Yeah. It gives you a little bit of cover. Yeah. Uh, and people that like I've never tried to keep it secret. I don't really care. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, so people that know me know that it's that I'm Butt Johnson and people right. that don't might not. And right. It doesn't really make a difference yeah there's but. also a long history of secret names or pseudonym pseudonyms through mm-hmm. creative culture mm-hmm. and i and i wrote down a few that i just looked at this morning okay um i want to see if if you know who any of these people are uh michelangelo marisi no that's caravaggio oh look at that um tuco lakonsanen <laughs> i'm probably pronouncing that right uh-huh. let, me, yeah. let me try it again tuco Laksanen. That's know. Tom of Finland. Oh. Oh, that's his real name. That's his real name. Yeah. Yeah, these are all the real name okay. that I'm giving I you love first. Tom of Finland. Yeah. Um, and the last one is uh, Robin Gunningham. Do you know who that is? Uh-uh. Banksy. Oh. The, yeah, the Banksy. Sp- Anyways, Suppose, I didn't know that supposedly. actually. <laughs> supposedly, yeah. Who knows how accurate that is? Yeah. But uh, those are just a few that I came up with. Yeah, and going even farther back, one of my art all-time art heroes, 
uh, Hokusai, the uh, Japanese yeah, artist. Uh, 17th, 18th and 19th century uh, Japanese artist um, would change his name every time he changed styles. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, and traditionally in, in some uh, like Japanese art circles, you would take on your master's name until you were ready to go on to your journeyman. Oh, cool. And then, uh, you know, as you would advance, you would you would start to change your name. And yeah, Hokusai is not his real name. Right. Uh, I remember as a kid, I had a Hokusai t-shirt with a big wave with uh, the, the boat riders yeah. on it. The, um, the print that spawned a million tattoos. Yeah. I mean, it's all over the place. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, but so, yeah, and yeah. for a while I was actually sort of juggling with the idea of changing my names stylistically. Oh, and interesting. when I decided to go abstract, when I was dabbling in abstraction, I was going to change it to Butt Jackson. Ah, okay. And I thought if I could ever get good enough at drawing, I would change it to Butt Jordan. Very like Michael Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> it's like an apex. Cool. Last last sort of thing I wanted to like touch on before we before we pivot into your work is have you ever caught any flack for the name Butt Johnson? I mean, it's pretty suggestive. Um, I mean, people are like, "That's stupid," <laughs> and like "tough name," or like, um, "Why why are you using that as a name?" Yeah. <laughs> uh, or you have a perfectly good name. Uh-huh. My family certainly. You know, my grandmother they had, have to, had to deal with it, and my mom has to deal with it when she's talking to her friends about her yeah, son yeah. as an artist. Uh, yeah, so I guess the, the so. sort of normal or, or like sort of expected response, you know, but Johnson, the name isn't for everyone. Perhaps. Yeah, and even, you know, like I certainly have had moments where I wake up sweating, like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> Do you ever think about dropping it? Uh, I haven't. I it would be like, what would I change it to? Like, yeah. I've never, I'm not totally comfortable working under my own name. I, well, I support it. I, I, I even, think, I mean, I think, thanks. I mean, it's you, the, the, the like arc of the work is there and I, I associate Bud Johnson with it and to suddenly start thinking of someone other named connected to it hurts my head a little bit. Yeah. Mine too. Okay. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's sort of like an ongoing I would say experiment. Right. Like I don't know how it plays out. I don't know how, right. If it's useful or if it's just stupid and adolescent, and certainly people have, oh, certainly people have pointed that out to me. Right. Right. As well over the years. Yeah. So, so let's talk about your work. Um, okay. I think it's important. It's right out of the beginning. Um, hold up to the to the sun. The fact that you are a, a dedicated uh, artist that makes drawings only yeah would you say that yeah is that fair to say i mean but johnson is but johnson is right um works or you know maybe maybe a more broader term is works on paper but yeah but i would and i've I've always identified you and uh, and identified with you as someone who has a real deep love for drawing yeah it's 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 my one of my primary loves right is, is drawing and the first work of yours i think i saw outside we went to school together although we didn't really cross paths I remember seeing you online at the Met. Yeah, waiting for food. Waiting for spinach and gelato. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we happened to be in a show together in like 2005, maybe? Which one are you talking about? Greater Brooklyn. Yeah. At CRG Gallery. Mm-hmm. And you presented um, your drawing that was called 
Unrequited Love, mm-hmm. uh, 2002 to 2003, which was a, a, a incredibly uh, labor-intensive ballpoint pen drawing on paper. Do you want to describe the image? Can you remember? Um, the It's a sort of Dutch floral still life. Um, and in the center of it, there is a screenshot from the, the old SETI project, Screensaver, which allows you it's one of the first examples of distributed computing okay uh and um i was interested in sort of mixing uh the idea of reproduction as like floral imagery with this idea of like interplanetary yeah there's some like creation myths communication and yeah Yeah. there's some creation there's some sumerian cuneiform text from the epic of gilgamesh yeah and uh there's some you know satellite dishes and are there security patterns in that one? Uh, or there, maybe like an early inkling of one or something like it's, this. It's a pattern with a repeating spirograph okay. form. Yeah. Because um, that's which, something that I think is consistent through, maybe maybe not so much in the newest work, we'll get there, but mm-hmm. is this, this component of, um, I don't know how else to describe it other than like math drawing. Like there's pattern yeah. and... Um, textures created through like repeated line work mm-hmm. and uh yeah i mean those are the sorts of things that i, I guess i use the term security pattern. i know that security patterns work in to some of the other yeah work, i mean the, yeah. you're you're actually nailing it right on the head those those um a lot of those patterns are like trying to come close to original securities like bond certificates okay. um from the turn of the 20th century, late 1800s, early 1900s, um, most of which were made at the American Banknote Company. Okay. Uh, And around 2002, I discovered an article in print magazine by a guy named Mark Tomasco, where he reproduced some of the most exceptional examples of these 19th century, 20th century securities engravings. And there's just like wizardry in in this. Technical wizardry. Technical wizardry, creative wizardry. And also like the era was this era of like manifest destiny in America. And, you know, know, that has horrible colonial implications now, but that, you know, of electrification and building railroads and connectivity across the continent and, and uh, these artists were tapping into that as a way to make bonds and security certificates for investors who were right. buying into these cap corporations. Right, right. Uh, and when I found th- these images, I was like, oh, I, it kind of cracked something wide open for me because I was like, they're plugging in the, the, like, the visual language of their era as a way of like positioning themselves. And I was like, there's so much information on these two dimensional images. I was like, I could do, th- I think I could do that too. Yeah. And so I started trying to plug in like, and this is also like the turn of the millennium. This mm-hmm. is like 2000, yeah. 2001, 2002. And I was like, well, we're going through a similar moment now, right? Like the railroads and the internet, there's, there's a connectivity thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I started plugging in sort of different images of right. popular culture and technology. And right. So, for example, so we've got you've got some of your work laid out from the past. What would you say this is? Ten years? Um, no more than that. Is this twenty years? Let's see that that Terminator drawing is from two thousand and six, seven. Uh, the so ten fifteen flowers of nine. Yeah, yeah, and then this is twenty eighteen. Okay, so yeah, about 
so the early <clears throat> the early works yeah i mean it has i feel like the the the, the constants are the ballpoint pen yeah uh a, a mix of art history and pop slash contemporary culture for instance this is a uh a drawing of the terminator from the terminator movies um with a care bear throwing like a cloak over its shoulders like trying to like put a shawl on it or something and i think it's taking the yeah. cloak off is it taking the cloak off in the background it's there's all this, it sure there's all this other information in the background but that's based on a, uh an engraving from yeah. the uh, 1700s uh from an engraver named albinus albinus uh the exact date i can look in this well book. i mean it's 18th century we can we can safely around say around then yeah, yeah. It's, it's enlightenment engraving right uh and I can talk about, engra- you know, engraving. Once I discovered those securities engravings, I was I was hooked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I just started doing research on the history of engraving and, and this language of old masters. Um, I thought was totally fascinating. Uh, uh, I guess engraving was like one of the like top arts. Like yeah. there's like painting, there's sculpture, there's and then there's engraving. Right, like, they were they were kind of the the you, rock star of the yeah you would like yeah, yeah you would like major in engraving and it it, it was like a ten year apprenticeship and um, so you know it, as this like sim- but it's also sort of a lost art and and I think there's something nostalgic even about the way things are drawn uh, or or engraved when when you look at old images you might not even know what those symbols are but you know you understand what the drawing is so it's. Uh, it's, right. It's something I thought was interesting, especially thinking about like the cycle of popular culture. You know, I, I remember I showed, I did one of Castle Grayskull. I remember that drawing. Uh, and I was looking at it with like a 23 year old. This is 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he had no idea what it was. <laughs> and I thought, right. wow, like that's exactly right. the interesting thing about this. It's right. like these these mythologies that we grew up with. Like totally. They don't last that long. I mean, I ask my students if they know what a rotary telephone is and they have no clue what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it <laughs> happens pretty quickly. It happens very quickly. Um, I mean, so to, to I think talking about how your work has sort of shifted and changed over the course of the past 15 or so years will be fascinating because I know your work from that long yeah so we just sort of went out went over what it looked like when i first saw it in that show at, at crg yeah in 2005 i think it was and then the follow-up after that i remember um you started to introduce uh more it was still ballpoint pen drawing super labor intensive still but you're introducing more floral imagery um and then also maybe right on the heels of that was some of the stuff um, and, and the Iraqi war was taking place. You're, you're drawing like these really, really intensely rendered blown up cars mm-hmm. that almost like from a, f- like if, if you like took them in on the surface, they like, they would bleed right into the floral form. Yeah. I, um, I remember yeah. finding an image of a, of a car bomb from, from Iraq and around that era. Yeah. And, uh, this is like 2000 when the when the war started to really go bad 2005 2006 uh-huh. uh and they you know you just see them every day in the news and then remember thinking like oh that looks like a flower right <laughs> and you know, a part of the premise of the war was that they would throw roses as we liberated these uh, oppressed people oppressed by Saddam Hussein and and so for me it became like a symbol of the the horrendous horrendous failure right um and 
and simultaneously like, I got fascinated by Islamic patterning. So uh, the the geometry of the patterning, it's some of the most complicated geometries ever created by humans. And um, so I, I was starting to try, I went from understanding these security patterns, um, which were made with a, a, a tool called a geometric lathe. Uh, the closest approximation that we have to it are, are a, a kid's toy, a spirograph. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we and, have one of those in our house. And so that's... I see it there. That's what I was using on those on those early drawings to make a... I would draw a spirograph in pencil, and then I would draw it over it in ballpoint. Okay. Uh, and sort of capture it. Um, and so I was, I was sort of dabbling back and forth between, like, geometry and Islamic pattern, which is a different kind of geometry... Um, and I went all the way to 2011 working in this vein, like trying to layer a lot of different ideas, uh, with a lot of different languages and thinking of each drawing as like almost like a treatise. Um, and the, each of the large ones would take me a year or two to, to finish. So I was doing ones on the Iraq war. I was doing that one, the, the unrequited love one that you mentioned um i did one on the history of architecture and the tower of babel yeah, that the went, tower of babel one i remember that yeah. went through the history of architecture from the ground floor all right. the way to the top which is like it's like babylon to right. contemporary skyscrapers uh i did one on graffiti yeah uh, i remember that one language of graffiti yeah uh and then at a certain point the the image dropped out and it became more geometric abstraction and like well, gestural yeah. stuff. Yeah. Once I talk about that transition. Once I I did a show and and it took about ten years to get all the work together for it and I felt like I was plugging in all these imagery and all this different kinds of imagery into this and using this language of old masters and and I and I learned a lot about drawing techniques. A lot of it was like aping others and trying to plug in my own approximations uh i still think that if you compare any of my drawings to someone from like the 1800 it's not even a, a close approximation right, right, like, right. like the, if you look at that terminator drawing next to the actual albinus like right I, there's well, the, nothing i there's no way to get close you know i can get close to it in the 21st century eye you're like oh that's pretty good yeah 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 but was that a goal to like try and match the uh, ability level I don't, I don't know that it mattered, uh, but I was curious to see like how, if you could pull it off, if I could pull it off. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, your, your and instruments it, were different than theirs. I mean, they, yeah. they, you're yeah. using a ballpoint pen for these. Yeah. And they were using like a, a, a burin and copper plate. Yeah. And I actually tried and I took like a workshop on engraving and it's like having two left hands or actually it's like using your foot. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, wow, this is such a different way of thinking. Yeah. It's so hard. Yeah. Uh, maybe if I'd spent 20 years doing this, yeah. I'd get good at it. But anyway, I was, um, I, I felt like I had done enough in this kind of language and I, and there were a couple like strings hanging off in the distance that I was like, I wonder if I can explore those and let go of imagery and just focus purely on drawing techniques. Like what will that get me? Right. Um, and not having to worry about it, like meaning something or like, and, and so I, I spent, from about 2011 to 2016 or 17 um, or 2016 just working like with lines mm -hmm. and color yeah. and abstraction and different kinds of mark making. Yeah. And, and actually this, if you see this drawing, we're looking at um, on my drawing table, um, there is a floral drawing from 2009 uh -huh. called untitled floral pastiche where I've 
taken different kinds of flowers from from ornament books um there's a there's one uh, uh, image of snapdragons there's a image of like an just sort of ornamental florid uh moment there's yeah, an yeah. islamic floret and then there's a spirograph and what's unifying all of them are a series of parallel lines very close together very gently drawn yeah and that's an old engraver's technique of like creating space and you can vary parallel lines closer together or yeah. farther apart to get a half tone in there too. to get a half tone in yeah. there and i was and that sort of uh, intrigued me as a as a unit as a way of creating units of information yeah. and so i started working with parallel lines only and being able to plug in what happens is it becomes like uh binary almost like there's a positive and a negative there's always a zero and a one yeah and then i started to, to sort of work with how many layers of zero and one could i put on top of each other sure. in one sure. drawing is that sort of what introduced you into the more abstract ones i mean because a lot of the i mean there's there's horizontal lines in these two and, and then underneath them some of the more gestural kind of uh like loose swipes yeah but you're building that that like math line over the top yeah and, and just removing any any sort of like recognizable imagery yeah and playing p with pure line it's just pure line and yeah. and just like pure form yeah and there's yeah. a lot of uh there's like optical tricks in the abstract work i feel like i mean you're we're sh you're showing uh like different direction to give dimension um different thicknesses of line to show depth what i'm trying to say is that some of these start to feel dimensional i mean they're 2d but they start to have the illusion of form or sculpture i mean some there is some embossing that's coming through yeah um that's but that's like a i think a wonderful gift with the abstract work is that it's it's taking on this illusionary aspect well there's like the realism illusionary in the earlier work this yeah. one is more uh like 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 rendering a, an object in space but it's still flat if that makes any sense yeah um i i think it's all a matter of just like slowly figuring out how to layer um different kinds of information um so if you have sets of lines and and they're you know x distance from each other and you vary that distance or you include another set of lines only in select yeah distances um, it starts to form another pattern and a lot of it I was drawing with scribbles and drawing the, then drawing around the pencil and erasing the pencil out uh, and then covering it again with something else right. so it looks like these drawings are like embedded somehow in the in the field but it's yeah. just your eyes yeah, yeah, yeah. On you. and it goes right back into the the engraving world that you're interested yeah. in and the securities pattern totally. security pattern stuff and I actually found yeah. out very early on working with these abstractions that like anything rigid with this other system of, of rigidity of these lines didn't work. Hmm. Uh, cause I started like trying to do Islamic patterning and, and just jump like actual math. Like I was drawing, I was drawing, um, algorithms <laughs> that I was like visual algorithms. Yeah. And I was like, this sucks. It's just, it wasn't interesting. And, and then I started to loosen up and like use a more like scribbly hand that would meet up against these series of right. lines. Right. Um, so you'll see like, you know, even in these, like nothing is exact, like this is even just an approximation. And yeah. You can yeah. See yeah. They're, they're all, they're not like, um, super accurate precision. I mean, it's all your hand and eye. It's, yeah. It's, um, it's estimating where the next line will go, which I think is one of the, one of the pieces of great joy in your work is that little, 
little bit of imperfection if you get in there and really look for it. You can it's, see that it's, it's done by that. hand. Yeah, you can see it's done by hand. And then to jump into the, the more recent stuff, mm-hmm. um, last time I was over, you shared that you are sort of sourcing mundane imagery. And for example, this one's a, a, a drawing of bell peppers. Mm-hmm. Um, but the treatment and the process is a little bit different. There's still like a, like a math, math line adage to it. But you're, you're doing like a loose gesture drawing from observation, or sometimes it's a tracing, I know, mm-hmm. um, with a marker. But then you're, you're like re-articulating that line with this very specific process that you're using that once it's complete, it gives off the vibe like it's been embroidered or something like that. Yeah. Can you and talk Can you talk about these ones? I'm sort of... Okay, so after I did that show of abstractions... Yeah. Did I, I jump too quickly I, to I, these? No, 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 okay. no. Um, I, I felt like I had, I had hit enough notes and developed a, a toolkit of techniques that I had been working on in abstraction. Um, and I was ready to sort of go back to, to working in imagery. And a kind of imagery I've always loved is embroidery. Uh, my grandmother was did embroidery, and I sort of grew up with it. And um, I remember she had a a sign in her house that she had like a stitching circle that she was a part of, and it said, mm-hmm. "Friends that stitch together stay together." Yeah. Uh, and I and I love that. Um, anyway, uh, so coming to the kinds of things that you would expect to see in embroidery, like birds and flowers, and sort of what I would call like middle of the road. Yeah, passive imagery. Passive imagery, homespun yeah. imagery. Yeah. Uh, I started this around 2016 when, okay. if you would think about like the political moment, yeah, uh, and things starting to get very polarized, uh, like searching for some kind of like neutrality, mm-hmm. uh, in like forms of nature, mm-hmm. and like you know, birds don't really necessarily take sides in political <laughs> debate, yeah, nor do flowers, nor do uh, nor does bell peppers, bell peppers, yeah. uh, and I mean, you know, I, I think there is a time and a place to take sides, but I also think that there's an argument to be made for, like, the middle. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm sort of seeking that out without overtly saying it, which mm-hmm. I, I just did, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, allowing a certain kind of imagery to to exist right. and inhabiting it with another kind of process. Right. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about these abstractions was that there's always something gestural happening that happened very fast with a way of drawing that's very slow. And it's almost like two different kinds of times, passages of time are encased in this drawing. And I like that, that, that different stretches of times can just different stretches of time can inhabit two-dimensional surface yeah and that's no different with these they're they're very quick gestural drawings of what you know of banal sort of nature imagery mm-hmm. they're not all nature but um yeah you've got bell peppers i've seen a bunch of birds there's asparagus yeah. growing from the ground yeah asparagus a bee like hovering above a flower yeah there's a raccoon yeah. eating garbage raccoon eating garbage right uh, a computer desk i did a, i did a computer desk uh i did a mini <laughs> You did a what? Sorry, a minivan. <laughs> a minivan, uh, and you know, inhabiting these this very quick drawing yeah. are, are these this very slow, systematic process of creating color yeah. and yeah. generating like and generating color 
And to me, it's the closest that I've come to painting uh-huh. since I studied painting. Yeah. And, and it, because you're, you're, there's like a, a impressionism aspect or like you're, I'm, I'm combining sets of colors inhabiting different sets of lines and, and they're, that's creating an image. Right. Um, so like, uh, can I describe like one, one set of, of marker lines will have like a thin green line followed by a thick green line, light green yeah. line followed by a thin green line again, followed by a yellow line and over those, like a, a, uh, a yellow line or something over like a, a yellow line, yellow guideline. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and the underdrawing of the markers is a kind of glazing too, because yeah. the, the ballpoint pen will pick up what's underneath it. Yeah. The jelly roll pens are a little opaque. So that lets me go back and forth yeah. between, between ballpoint and jelly roll. And, over the last 20 years, uh, I should talk about this. Maybe like I've been using ballpoint, but, um, um yeah. so, so yeah, so th- I'm inhabiting a yellow line with one set of colors and then like a darker green line with another set of colors. Yeah. And that's creating like the image of, a, of yeah. a pepper. I think I referred to these as the human printer drawings when I was here last. Yeah. They do a, have like a, and that's what I, I guess I mean by like a computer or some sort of algorithm figuring out the CMYK and like what color should go over what to get the yeah. third, fourth and fifth color. There's almost like a, uh, if you select color range in Photoshop yeah. and, and there's like a fill tool and you're only filling up that color range. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing that, but with, uh, it's very small right. lines, right. Uh, accumulated lines of pen. And the fun thing is that it takes a long time yeah. <laughs> and I don't know what it's going to look like when I'm working on it. Yeah. So there's, there's always like a few moments of panic that I'm sure every artist has when they're working and you're like, ah, oh, fuck it. This isn't going to work. Yeah. Uh, and then you're like, oh, well, if I just keep doing it, maybe it'll work. Yeah. One of the things I think is unique about your work, um, is that you build rigs to execute uh-huh. and you have a like beginning, middle and end to completing a drawing. Yeah. As far as I can, as, as far as I can see. And I want to just take a sec to describe your setup. You have like a, a traditional drafts person table mm-hmm. that's kicked up at maybe a 45 degree angle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a slide rule on the bottom. That's the may line. Is that the brand? It's a may line. Yeah. It's okay. like an old architectural right. drafting tool. It's a parallel ruler. Okay. And then I know when you're working, you tape down your sheet of paper and then you use the, the may line to hold another guide for your line sometimes mm-hmm. that you um, it's like this one right here is a cut piece of plexi with different contours in it. Yeah. It kind of looks like a, like a puzzle piece in a way or something like this. It's a laser cut sheet of plexi of yeah. acrylic plexiglass, but uh, those will steer your lines over. Um, I guess maybe talk yeah. about the, the, how you arrived at using these rigs and, and maybe it, um, it probably, how they help and what the, what the, benefits and challenges are it came from trying to figure out how to do those uh securities patterns uh i i you know you cup up as you come up against like hurdles you're like how how do people do this how do people do this uh so a a parallel ruler or may line gives you a constant straight edge and then if you have an architectural drafting triangle it opens and closes and it and you can run it along the may line and then you always have a series of parallel lines and if you're doing something really complicated, like Islamic ornament, um, you'll need like a circle stencil, uh, and and you can re- and using a may line, you can actually repeat those circles over and over again, and, yeah. and to form and accumulate them to form geometries. Uh, and I guess once I figured out 
that you could create parallel lines with this, I was like, well, how can I sort of hack into what a parallel line can do? Right. And that's when I started doing different directions of lines. And then I started uh, in Illustrator making files of like squiggle lines and okay. having them laser cut so that I could have a line with, with with variety in it right do you do small studies for these before you jump into the larger ones um you know and when i say large like 18 by 24 yeah. for you i mean you've got some bigger drawings that you're working on that are i can't I get know, above bigger than 40 by 60 but yeah i can't really get above the size of my drafting table yeah um without moving to a wall and you can see i already have like a piece of cardboard taped down to extend the may line yeah 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 and the the side of of the laser cutter is as about as big as I can go right. on plexiglass unless I tiled it together. Right. Um, so going larger would just have to be a different rig. Right. Um, but um, I I do some studies. I I have some things kicking around like. Well, you little, just said like uh, you make stuff on Illustrator. I just wondered if there's like a quick little. I only dummy use Illustrator. I only use Illustrator to because that's what the laser cutter understands. Oh, okay. Um, but I have a lot of like scraps of paper often kicking around that I'll just, if I have a second, start doodling on and, and maybe I'll see something or a different process. Yeah, you have a few taped to your yeah, this, table. Yeah, th we're looking at color swatches. So okay. I'm drawing with, with more different color markers and then drawing on top of them with right. different combinations of lines. And so that allows me to kind of think about how I want to introduce colors into a, into a system. But they're not, it's, right. it, you find that, have you ever heard of the idea of a regression towards the mean? It's like, Tell me. it's like, um, I like the sound of it. It's like, uh, no matter, they often use it as a sports analogy. Uh, like if you're, if you're an excellent, uh, bat, what's it called? Like hitter. Yeah. Uh, in baseball, in baseball. Um, God, I'm so articulate about sports. <laughs> if you're a really good hitter in baseball, um, you, Hit, hit well consistently and if you have a streak like the longer your streak goes the more statistically the odds go up of you doing worse oh right 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 okay and and basically like the middle is always pulling you in mm -hmm. uh, in any any statistical set uh the middle is always pulling you towards the mean right. right the average yeah uh and this is like regression towards the mean for your eye okay so if there's a certain accumulation of lines yeah it'll pull you into into what that will look like as right. like a color field. Right. And a small sampling of that doesn't give you the full effect of what's going to happen. Right. Um, you know, I think it's important to talk about labor and, and commitment because I think those are both really important to your process and your studio practice. Um, and patience, you know, you know, it's, 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 it's a fraught road to talk about like how long did it take you to make this? But yeah. you're on record and I, I've had conversations with you before where it takes you a couple of years to realize one drawing. Yeah. And then this, this word obsessiveness gets thrown around and I yeah. know that word doesn't fit necessarily. Can you talk about that? Um, I, I mean the, when I started drawing, I'm, I'm never like, this is going to take a year. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know how long they're going to take. And that's, just a part of execution right so however long it takes and I, I am patient and I will finish see something through to completion and there is something nice about once the like parameters of something are set there's not a lot of like guesswork 
I mean, there's still moment to moment some guesswork that's involved, but I, but I, it's mostly execution. So the way the way I process it's it can be actually like a very peaceful way of of creating something, and and I don't always exercise my full consciousness when I'm drawing. So I'm listening to books on tape. Mm-hmm. You've got background background filler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I actually do a, like, quite a bit of reading while I'm while I'm um, or listening. Well, it seems like the work invites that sort of outside voice or way of thinking where you where the the task at hand becomes almost automatic yeah because you had you do have this system of working yeah and and sometimes there's some things in the system that that will change or i'll have to figure out on the fly but mostly once i've established it it's it's really plugging it in and there's something pretty interesting about like watching your body do that right like you if you set like a a b a b select start up down yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> nintendo nerd joke um if you set up a, a system like your brain will mostly remember it yeah. and your and your hand will mostly remember it yeah but sometimes it slips up and like who knows why that happens right it's right, not, right it's not a, well that's also some, where some of the, like those little errors in these drawings totally which yeah. are really great and a reminder that a human made these yeah yeah and that that humans are flawed um, yeah, nice. and I, the other thing, like I don't, part of the fun. I've never like thought of you as an obsessive artist. I sort of associate obsessiveness with a, with like mental health stuff or like a tick. These these don't like fall into that category for me. Yeah, I, I can stop it. They any, just they I just can take, stop at any time. Yeah, they just <laughs> they. I mean, I mean, I know you've said that like these drawings wouldn't be able to come to be without the the time and the craft yeah. and the labor in them. So yeah, there's. Um, the, I mean, I I am a, I I do respect things that are well made, and I, and I am interested in trying to create things that are well made. Uh, I, I love craft, and I love um, and I love like a an attention to detail. Right. And so that's something that I've tried to to emulate and at least in my work. Yeah, the it rest, definitely comes The rest through. of my life up for debate. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely comes through. I just want to talk uh, briefly about this one idea I have about your work and then I want to shift gears. Okay. But um, like kind of circling back to the ideas in your work or how the work lands for me as a viewer, it's, the, it's, this, it's a little bit of this three-card Monty for me. And each card, like one card is nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Another card is uh, sentimentality. And another card is irony. Mm-hmm. And depending on like how I'm feeling that day or what the explicit imagery is in that yeah. drawing, that like I'll pick that one card. Um, the other things that I can weave into your work are this, the dedication and patience through process and me knowing a little bit about you, um, but also like a sense of humor and that like can circle back into the irony yeah. of some of these drawings, but also a, seri- a seriousness, like a, a real like importance to honoring a craft and honoring the, the self and the time it takes the self to, to make and realize these drawings. Um, I know, I guess I just wanted to like set you up to talk a little bit about nostalgia and sentimentality and irony. And if those have a place in the, in, in this work. I, I love that triumvirate yeah. of, <laughs> of ideas. Cause like, those are, those are like all, that's the braid of, okay. of, of like conceptual you know strings yeah. that i that i want to try and pull together in all this work uh it's like yeah nostalgia uh you know uh sentimentality yeah. earnestness yeah and an irony and yeah. i and i feel like there is like a 
there's a, a fine line between all of those things and 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 um yeah i mean i feel like people can like fr- pretty quickly frown on irony but i think it's important in the in the sense that um it sort of acknowledges the absurdity yeah of an artistic pursuit or a life in this world i think it's important to have a sense of humor in sure. life sure. and there's like there's like an i don't think all irony i i don't think all irony has to be cynicism and, i agree and i and i don't think there's a lot of cynicism in this work right uh and i I've i don't never, get that i've never really tried to pursue it maybe like having the name but johnson could be seen as cynical uh and but i i don't think it is i right. think it's more of a like rye sure sure rye, I mean, it's just a, it's a beautiful wonderful <laughs> thing too to think about a, a, like a two-year drawing of a terminator getting derobed by a care bear i mean that's i mean i can't think of anything better right now <laughs> to be honest <laughs> anyways um let's pivot into um some biography if you're comfortable okay and this is maybe where we could talk about vulnerability through art sure and i'm gonna ask you to um unmask bud johnson if, okay. you're, if you're comfortable my real name is rob this is rob holt and people may know him as the founder and director of klaus gallery klaus van Zagen gallery hmm. um or as a uh teacher in the painting department at the rhode island school of design um Nice to see you, Rob. <laughs> nice to see you, Jeff. Uh, uh, but I was here the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, I think it'd be great to hear. You, you sort of talked about some early influences when you were a kid, and like mm-hmm. coming up with code names and making comics. Mm-hmm. But can you can you pinpoint um, a point or an experience or something you saw in your youth that sort of nudged you towards? becoming an artist as, as a way of life? Sure. I mean, uh, a lot of it comes from like my first encounters with art were comics and I used to go to comic conventions. I was really into it. Uh, I had a couple of friends that we would self publish comics with and, uh, try and hawk them and, and there's a culture around it. And I, I love the, the culture around, especially independent comics. I think there's something really, really great about it. And it's a very different world than like the art world. Um, the contemporary art world, the contemporary art world. Yeah. Uh, not that that's a monolithic organism by any means. Uh, it's just a convention, uh, to call it that. But, um, but that's, you know, I, I sort of started, I guess around, I mean, really college, I Mm -hmm. started switching gears into, into thinking about like a a larger art art context. Oh, actually, no, I take it back. High school. Uh, I, I became interested in, in sort of, um, the art world as a, as a different kind of Mm -hmm. strategy of thinking visually than, than comics. Like there's still narrative in it and I still love comics, but to, to have like a, it's a different kind of system. Uh, and you, you only have, you know, you have a different, it's just a different set of parameters. Yeah. Um, I know you have a love of subcultures, comics being one of them. Are there any other yeah. subcultures that, um, bubble up to the surface when I, when I share that term, say that term? Um, it's hard, it's hard to, I mean, I love science. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that shows in the drawings, man. Uh, my, my other true love is science, biology, especially, uh, but physics and, 
and ecology. Uh, I do some gardening. I'm really int- I've been get- as I've been getting older, I've been getting into more like gardening. No, that sort of connects right back into the image of the past couple of years. Yeah, imagery. yeah, and, a lot of gardening imagery. It because I spent a lot of time in this community garden across the street. Yeah. Uh, that I've been a member of since 2007, and uh, and so like the actual exposure to like birds and flowers it's it's not just like a it's actually is kind of personal right uh it's based on lived experience um but but sure um i don't know i i'm sort of an information person so all 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 sets of information are interesting right right and remind me where you grew up i grew up in rockland county new york which is a suburb just north of the city right so not you you haven't strayed too far from home no landing in new york you've been in new york what 15 years uh oh one i moved oh, one. here after okay. college yeah um pretty much in this apartment i'd be remiss if we didn't talk about klaus a little bit sure can you give a little bit of history uh sure uh klaus uh so we're sitting in a, an apartment in williamsburg brooklyn uh that i moved into pretty soon after graduating and um just a few blocks away from here there is a strip of storefronts um near the subway station uh, uh the Lorimer subway station more specifically and uh one of those storefronts uh became got it oh my god uh became an opportunity yeah <laughs> at, to inhabit and uh through a, a very random set of occurrences um we started to inhabit an empty storefront on Union Avenue in Williamsburg in 2004. Almost across a landmark for people around here. It's right, it was right near the Kellogg's Diner. Yeah, yeah. it's, yeah. And actually that building is where Klaus was, is now slated for demolition. Oh no. But, uh, but we were there from 04 to 2010. And, uh, you know, when we started renting that storefront, I believe the rent was $500 a month <laughs> and we split it between four people. Right. And there's something to be said for, like empty storefronts that are low rent because I think all sorts of interesting cultural developments can happen uh, when things aren't too expensive. Uh, And and it was by sheer accident that we came to inhabit it. And eventually we had to take more and more responsibility to keep it going. But it really was just a way for us to do art shows with our friends. Right. And I feel like it's when you say we, it's important to mention who the we is. Yes. Thank you. Um, Okay. So the storefront was found by this guy named Matthew Chase that uh, we, that we went to school with. And then he brought in a a woman named Ingrid Kennedy and I met her in the storefront and then they were talking about actually putting on shows in here and invited me in and, not knowing anything about galleries or how to install. I had a good friend named Sam Wilson uh, who had worked at a few galleries doing installation, and I asked him if, if he was interested in helping out or if he would be interested in joining, and he was. And about two two years in, Matthew Chase stopped doing it. He became not, not, he wanted to do other things, yeah. and Ingrid, Sam, and I have continued it. Right, and so it started uh, off as like an artist-run space, and in a lot yeah. of ways still is. Um but the beautiful thing about Klaus is that it's still soldiering on very healthily, uh-huh. might I add. And you guys made the leap to the city, which I remember when you guys did that, I was like, oh my God, it, like this is real. Like felt like late. 
I know it for lack of a better description. It's like, Oh, that's a real thing now. Yeah. And it's funny. Huh? It became even more real when you started to show up in, in like the, the upper tier art fairs, like yeah. Nada and now armory. We used to have a joke when we were running the, the storefront in Williamsburg, like a real gallery, a, a quote unquote real gallery would do it this way when, whenever, Okay, so we didn't know any, really nothing about about running a running a gallery mm-hmm. at the time, and and it, everything was learning on the fly, and right. to some extent it still is. Uh, and so it was uh, just a, a long and endless learning curve. Right. And um, so we would say like, oh well, a real gallery would do it this way, or right. we would look to other galleries as models of how to operate and how to do things in the world. And like, so it's funny. to yeah that you bring up the the term real because what is you know like, yeah i mean it's it's uh it's just like my own sort but, of greenness but it there. was ours too like yeah. we would say it like you know th- and, and then like if you if you escalate architecturally or location wise it like it that that like program of right. like realness starts to that context starts to shift yeah of like what an artist run space what you're looking at the art in an artist run space or like a an a more like quote unquote serious gallery. Right. And that's part of the commercial gallery. Yeah. As I put in. And that's part of like the very fascinating, like fluid dynamics of like yeah. perception and, and contemporary art. Yeah. It's funny. Now I'm thinking about using the word real and like how we quantify things. Like at what point am I a real artist? Is it when I don't have a day job anymore? Yeah. Or is it yeah. when I'm making work every day? Cause yeah. those things aren't the case. Right. Does that, it, you know, it's sort of a fraught word. Yeah. Um, it, it, and and yeah. but uh, but also like we are inhabiting this like economy of of art making and and fine even if it's not an, an economic situation like where what's a real artist like do you just call yourself that do other people have to call you that right and and, and I would argue that like the artist gets to set the parameters for Agreed. for what it is Agreed. but but all these different like systems are built into like quote unquote what makes it real right and what the outside community um a throw as, as a as a title on it and things like right. this yeah. um like that that art world yeah. thing i think we should like since we talked about you know the 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 origins of the name but but johnson mm-hmm. i know every time i mention to someone that doesn't know or has not heard of klaus von Nixagen, mm-hmm. what does that mean another so made-up name <laughs> tell the listeners what that is it's another uh, made-up name yeah uh as a as the four of us who started the gallery like we didn't know what to call it and um we being this outpost in in williamsburg uh in the in the mid 2000s when most of the gravity of the art world was in was in chelsea there was definitely some great galleries in in williamsburg yeah um and a few on the lower east side but um we wanted to sort of have a pretentious art dealer name and a german friend suggested this word Nichtsagen. <laughs> What's it translate to? Translate to something. Uh, Nicht means nothing, and Sagen means saying or says. Says nothing. It's a, yeah. So, so it, Klaus says. It's nothing? a German colloquial. Okay. That I guess like it, it it has a lot of fluidity, and and over the years people have said it it means things as vast as like I have nothing to say anymore, or like it can't be explained, or you don't get it. Uh, it's perfect. I even heard someone. A, a, a younger German was like, well, we don't spell it that way anymore. We spell it N-I-X Sagen. Ah, that's absolutely perfect. <laughs> uh, so yes, this unpronounceable German cool. word cool. came to define. Uh, whenever I have an opportunity to talk to someone that's um, got one or both feet in the, the gallerist slash dealer position, I, I'm, I'm hoping I can ask you to put on your dealer hat. Okay. And I want to ask you, 
kind of a tough question, but okay. I think it's a good one. Is I think selling art is such a magic trick. How do you sell art? You got you got an hour <laughs> or a couple of days. I mean, that's, that's a tough one, and we I, you know I want to spend too much time on it's it. It's just can you, it, there's no one yeah. way. It's not there's no uh, there's no one answer to that. Yeah, it's yeah, as yeah. varied as like fair enough. S- snowflakes yeah uh you know there's there's um you know sometimes people show up sometimes you're introducing people right. to, to artwork and you put a price on it right um you're presenting it in a situation where it's it's being seen as something that that has monetary value and people and you put it in a situation that it could be purchased right and those parameters alone sometimes are enough our first show that we did at Klaus, we sold something from, we sold a painting. It was Pam Jordan's show, first show. It was 2004, and somebody bought one of her paintings. And us being an artist friend space, we were not expecting that, and we were like, oh my god, <laughs> like, right. oh my god, yeah, yeah. I'm putting in my wow. my tea. yeah, <laughs> wow, we, uh, and um, and it was amazing, and I don't think we predicted it. We put prices on it, and and um, and it happened. So yeah. uh, there yeah. there are like ways of pursuing sales yeah. i guess and then there but a lot of it is is context yeah yeah that, that makes sense i know it's like the 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 ability to be persuasive the ability to like educate someone on a work of art um if that person has like a a need for an art object in their life for some reason it's like helping them understand what makes sense for that need um yeah, there's yeah. as many reasons for yeah. that people buy art, and as many reasons that right, you know, art is sold. So um, it's, a, it's a wide and varied. Yeah, much is much is often written about how the the contemporary art world is sort of a, a more vast, inclusive space to varying degrees. Uh-huh. You know, I'll argue can always be and do better. Yeah, but is there anything that comes to mind for you in terms of like if you had a wand, what you would change about it? It would take me some time, and I'd have to think. I, I could probably think of a lot of things that I would. Right. That I would Nothing change. jumps up to the front, though. Yeah, but but it, uh, also, it's not a the, the quote unquote contemporary art world is by no means a monolithic. Right. Yeah, you mentioned thing. that earlier, which it's, I appreciated. It's, there's it's it's, you know, galleries are run by are like small businesses run by very different people who have very different motivations and personalities, and uh, so there's no there's certainly like. I don't think of it as, as one, I mean, the art quote unquote art world that I inhabit is so different, like from the one that usually gets people think of when they think of the art world, Right. but it's just as complicated and just as like culturally interesting. And, and, and there's just as much conversation, uh, around. And, and I think, you know, different galleries have their whole, whole ecosystems around them that they form and, and, you know, it, it can be a small gallery in Williamsburg. It can be a gallery, you know, a small gallery in, in Cleveland that, that starts something and, 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 and can form its own ecosystem. And, and I think that speaks to something much more complicated, right? Like a cultural, cultural ecosystem yeah. form and, yeah. and live and die like, like regular ecosystems. Sure. I also think it's important to mention, you know, we were talking about subcultures earlier, even within the co- contemporary art world there's all these sub worlds within that and maybe that's what you're talking about but like yeah about like which section of that you're actually in and yeah yeah um, there there is no 
it's monolith yeah. and 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 the longer you spend time in doing this in this world the more complicated you see how how it is right and and that's what keeps it interesting yeah you keep learning about new things you keep seeing new things develop and balloon and and live and die and and um and i think you know that's why yeah that's what keeps it interesting yeah this is sort of continuing the thread of of like gallerist dealer but also maybe we can throw in your identity as a teacher here for this this question mm-hmm. um and i know you teach a professional practice class mm-hmm. at RISD in the painting department um but i but i i always love to hear people that have a lot of experience going to studio visits as as a observer mm-hmm. whether you're a teacher or an art dealer for that matter yeah um what f- from where you stand what the, the the ingredients are for a positive studio visit um what do you look for for uh, um, when you're visiting a, a, an artist in their studio in terms of how they walk you into the work or have it set up. This is like, I'm, I'm hoping for some real practical information yeah. that's useful for listeners. I out mean, there. I definitely you want, you look for things like a, a certain like rigorousness and how they approach their work and how they make it and how they consider it that they are like, you know, uh, I think rigorousness really is yeah. is one of the, the strongest things so it doesn't matter necessarily what they're making or how, or it maybe they're not making anything maybe right. they're just they're totally you know it's conceptual and theoretical and but if there's a rigorousness to it that then it, they can make a convincing argument for it and then they can bring you into that and mm-hmm. then, then you're interested um when it's things that are just not thoughtful or or like well thought out or like without an understanding of a larger context or a larger world like that that's that's when you're like, uh, right. What, you know, but, but, but I'm always willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. Right. And, and I think that's, you know, I'm, if I'm at someone's studio, I'm usually pretty curious about what they're doing. And even if they invited me randomly, I try to be generous. I can't go to every studio right. visit, but, but, um, but sometimes people randomly email me and invite me and And then if I, you know, if it's there, I'll, I'll go. Right. Do you look for, when you go on a visit, do you want to see, a gazillion works or do you want to see five exceptional works? Do you want to see works in progress? I mean, I think, I mean, I go to a lot of studio visits too. And, um, you know, those visits that are great, but you're kind of overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that's, that's put in front of you. Do you have any suggestions on how to, how to curate within your own studio for, for a visit? Um, I think, you know, you can just think about like what you want to communicate. I think people, if you bring out a, a, a variety of works, make sure that there's some thread that can be consistent because a lot of it's like storytelling right. and, and, and bringing someone into, into your process and your practice. And so floating off in a lot of different directions is um, not always helpful. Right. Um, what about, um, I know... I think it's... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah I, and I don't think it necessarily has to be like, I made 10 of these paintings... Um, I've been like, I love painting ducks and my practice is all about ducks. And, um, and I feel like I have 10 good ducks and, and I think that, you know, that can work, but if, you know, there's a sculpture in there that doesn't relate, right. Uh, you know, it just, if you, if you're showing it, I think yeah. just be cognizant of how that, 
yeah. threaded. It, it might not always be the best space to be like, look at all my tricks. Look at all the things that I can do. I think being specific is probably wise, yeah. sage advice. Yeah. Uh, although sometimes it is helpful to be yeah. like, well, I'm also trying this other stuff. And, and sure. man, people have such different, like, everybody has such a different take on studio visits. Like the, I, I've, I've gone to an artist studio and like there might be like one thing floating in the background that like you kind of notice and you're like, that's cool. And then like another gallerist will be showing that work six months later. Right. And it's like 20 of that one thing that you barely noticed and it looks great. And you're like, wow, like that, that's a whole different direction that yeah. I, that I wasn't seeing. But, well, it comes it, it comes down there. to like like your personal point of view too when you're in the gallery, in, yeah. the, in the studio. Yeah, and different dealers. Like the, I mean, not, I'm I'm only speaking. Tell me to put my gallerist hat on, but yeah. you know, everybody has a different perception, and I, you know, I think it's I think it's hard. You know, it's important just to try and find like a, a way to speak to who you're talking to right. and like think of them as the, as an individual. Right, that's, everyone's an individual. That's well said. Um, I know you, you, you teach this professional practice class mm-hmm. and last time we we're hanging out, um, you really wanted to emphasize the, the professional. Um, I did. Well, you said like, like just be professional. Like, uh, like I, I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, um, uh, what, what, if you could elaborate a little bit, like on how important it is to be. Yeah. I mean, I think of that as like one of the influences of my partners running the gallery is like, we've always tried to, and, and, they especially like have always tried to like keep a very professional attitude, even when coming up against like, you know, there's a lot of different personalities and there's a lot of different characters, uh, in this business mm-hmm. and in any business really. So, but to, to actually like keep your cool and stay professional can be challenging sometimes, and, yeah. but I think it's really important. Uh, and I think it's okay to be like casual and also, right. but, but, um, but like, you know, not, yeah. not, not to let go beyond the boundaries right. of like what a, a professional relationship. Would no, be. I appreciate it because I think, um, you know, I've found myself in the past in what I would like identify as a professional situation where I'm communicating with an art dealer or another artist. And that person is rude in some capacity, yeah. bordering along on being an asshole. Yeah. And I'm just like, what, like why, where does that come from? Where is, why, why? Yeah not not the right space for this what, like, yeah where does that get you and i think it's a good reminder for i don't know, especially in this world we live in now like this like baseline yeah acknowledgement of, and dignity we owe, owe for each other and respect yeah. i mean yeah i guess it's i, I guess i'm all about the yeah. gold, golden rule yeah. <laughs> i think the golden rule is a is golden yeah yeah <laughs> uh and I, and i think you know crossing the the like lines into dickishness it's just like why what does it get you yeah. and like you you really just want to like stress someone out or make them feel yeah. bad like what what does that put into the it's world usually connected to like a bigger problem and like ego and control and power and like hierarchy and where you yeah. find yourself in that equation but i mean yeah. come on i don't know i think i think we owe it to ourselves to be yeah totally respectful um all right so i want to uh invite butt back into the conversation um and maybe i'll set this up like this so i was you know talking to another artist recently who described their sort of infrastructure behind their practice and career you know this person has pretty big gallery here in new york pretty big gallery in la pretty big gallery in london Mm -hmm. a wonderful big studio space a second home owns their apartment and as i'm i'm 
sort of hearing this, I'm like, wow, you've, you've like kind of captured all the things that I think I want in my life uh-huh. or some version of it. Um, yet this person still was not satisfied. Okay. They, you know, it was kind of sort of like talking about like, there's always one level up more from the level you're at that you're sort of chasing or tra- striving towards. Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering like keeping up with the Jones. Yeah. Thing. Something like this, but I'm wondering like what, what, I mean, that's more of like a spiritual platform yeah, to like, perhaps to not live that cycle of samsara. Yeah. Like, but, but it's always fascinating. Like, Oh, you have all the things that I think I need to be like a happier yeah. person. And I try not to compare yeah. myself to others. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's that can uh, be a total mind fuck. That's a slippery Happiness slope. does not lie in that direction. Yeah. But I guess I'm wondering what drives, but, and what keeps him pushing forward and I mean, when, but it, is satisfied. Uh, I mean, but being a fictional, <laughs> you like how uh, we're talking like in the first person. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, in, in art, there's like, that's, you find your own parameters of challenge and you find your own directions, ways to think about how you're going to create creatively pursue something. And you have to set that up for yourself. It has nothing to do with the, um, <laughs> I'm going to quote Friday Night Lights, Coach Taylor. Do it. Success is not a result. It's a byproduct. There you go. (laughs) Uh, I'll follow it up with clear eyes, full heart. Can't lose. Can't lose. Uh, Yeah, but I I believe that. I mean, it's like you're you're setting up your own challenges and your own parameters. And I I think that's your own thing. Like like what, what comes of that? If it's if it's true, something will come of it. Yeah. Maybe who knows? There's no guarantees. Yeah, man. You could be, you know, you could have the most amazing shit, and no one cares, and it's and good. that can be, and you might not be interested in that. Yeah. And I think that's fine too. It's a it's 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 wide open, and uh, you know, unfortunately, there's no easy answers. But like, more money and more shit is not probably the no. The Those ha- aren't the happiness does not lie. No, I, I think that's clear. Uh, but I, and I don't know. I think it's. You know, we owe it to ourselves to like take a beat and relish in the fact that, um, like these small victories, like completing a drawing or, or having having a good, like hang with a friend and talking about art. Like those are the sorts of ingredients to a healthy, productive things that make me happy life. Yeah. Right. Like if I, if I have a great long day in studio or even just like an hour where I'm, you know, sitting, drawing in my sketchbook, uh, like that makes me feel yeah. good and happy. Or just leaving studio in a place where you're excited to come back the next day to get totally. back at that thing. Like, that's yeah. That's something that I strive towards, and it's, it's elusive. But like when that's there, like I'm super excited. It's always been like a source of comfort for me in yeah. all of my challenges in yeah. life. Is like a, a place to go and, and do your thing and mm-hmm. and feel good at the end of it. And that's just you. Yeah. Like there's nothing else involved in that. Yeah. Like there's no there's no one else involved in it. What's the last great piece of culture you saw, or experienced? Uh, or listen to or read um i i read this book the overstory by richard powers really nice really great book cool about uh, real quick what's it about yeah. about trees <laughs> trees yeah so going back to like botany and gardening yeah but also like as a cultural as as a as living things great um sort of nearing the end here uh, i'd like to end on this sort of vast open-ended question about dream projects do you have any dream projects or goals? Like it, e- even if it's not on the books or just something you'd love to accomplish before um, the Reaper comes and knocking on your door? Dream projects. Uh, 
I don't know. No, uh, there's nothing one. like specific that I'm like, if I don't finish this yeah. before I die, like, right. It wasn't worth it. What's on the horizon for butt or for Klaus? Um, we have a beautiful show up at Klaus right now of photographs by David Gilbert. Um, and it's, and we have a great spring season that's mostly set mm-hmm. up. Um, I'm working on a drawing of Chicago, a big drawing of the Marina Towers in Chicago that I'm very excited about and mm-hmm. hope yeah. to finish in the next I got two, a sneak or peek of it. two or three months. It's going to be a, an incredible one. And uh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just like keep plugging along. I don't, you know. Cool. Uh, we're, it's, we're in the like early days of the, well, mid days of the leaves changing on the trees and yeah. it's it's been a pretty spectacular color fall i think i can't remember one where there's this variety of colors outside great well rob um i'm glad that we finally got to do this we've been talking about it for probably over a year now yeah it's been a while um i've been i've been loving your podcast and thanks man this was so fun i mean i mean i've always been a admirer and supporter of your work and of klaus gallery um but it's been great to sort of deep dive with you on this stuff and um you know as someone who like finds drawing really important in my life it's uh, it's always great to talk to someone else that shares that and uh, your work has always been a, a, a real mind melter and, and uh, i'm excited to thanks. see see where it goes in the next next body of work here me too thanks rob all right thanks jeff we've made it to the end a quick reminder that you can learn more about each contributing artist Find links to their online portfolios and access the archive of past recordings by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and subscribe in the Apple Podcast directory or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.